Would you please turn again in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, chapters 21 and 22. These texts are long. I hope you're reading them ahead of time. I hope you're reading them afterward. One of the reasons we teach on longer portions of narrative is so that you can see how they hold together and what they're trying to communicate. Last week, Jordan Green did such a good job of showing us that in the three chapters he covered. Friend or foe, which way will you relate to the anointed king is the question. He also introduced us to a sub-theme that will continue throughout the rest of the book of 1 Samuel and even into 2 Samuel, and that is this, David is on the run. Running from Saul, who's trying to kill him, David is in fact a refugee at this point in the story and will continue to be a refugee, a fugitive, on the lamb, seeking shelter from Saul. I want you to take note of something that you may catch through reading through the whole book of 1 Samuel in a setting, and that is that a third of this book is David on the run. A third. That's a lot of biblical text. It must be important. Not only that, this period of David's running as a refugee is picked up all throughout the Psalms. As you read through the Psalms, look at the inscriptions at the top of them and you will see allusions to David's wilderness wanderings throughout them. This must be really important. Why is it important? Why so much space and attention to David on the run as a refugee? I want to try to answer that question before we begin because I think it may help you enter in to the story. David was anointed king in 1 Samuel chapter 16, but he does not take the throne until 2 Samuel chapter 5. So, here's the point I'm making. Before he takes the throne, God's anointed king must suffer. This is the same pattern we see in the life of great David's greater son, King Jesus. It may not be a coincidence then that approximately a third of the Gospels recount the last week of Jesus' life. He also encountered many sufferings before he took the throne. This pattern is critical for our salvation. It had to be this way. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus is talking to these disciples that said, we had hoped that Jesus was the Savior, but He has been killed. And Jesus says to them, did you not know that it was necessary that the Christ would suffer before He entered into His glory? And then He opened the Scriptures to them. 
all of the scriptures. I would have loved to have been at that Bible study. And he showed them from the scriptures that it was necessary that the Christ should suffer before he entered into his glory. I'm convinced he took them to running refugee David in the chapters in 1 Samuel to make his point. You see, here's the point. Our only hope for refuge, you are refugees. Our only hope for refuge is found in the refugee king. Not a king like the nations. Not a king who saves by sword or spear. But a king who had to be brought low before he was lifted high. A king who had to mount a cross before he wore the crown. David's life points to the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I hope you'll see that very clearly this morning and that you will look to Him and that your hearts will be changed because of the truths that are found in the Gospel. But David is not only pointing us to Jesus, he is also serving as a stark contrast to the kinds of rulers that we have in this world. A stark contrast to the life of Saul. David was a refugee king. Saul, a ruthless king. Who will you serve? He not only wants to kill David, he wants to kill anyone who sides with David. And so it's not only David who is seeking refuge from Saul. Anyone who's not with Saul is seeking refuge from Saul in this story. The same is true in our day. You just try to turn your back on the world, the flesh, and the devil. You will be assaulted. The world, the flesh, and the devil are seeking to steal, kill, and destroy you, especially if you are opposing them. But there is refuge, friends, to be found. There is provision for the people of God. There is ultimate, lasting protection for the people of God. But it is ironically found in the refugee king. Not a king like the nations. 1 Samuel 21 and 22 are divided into two acts. Acts 1 is David on the run. This is all of chapter 21 and the first five verses of chapter 22. Act 2 is Saul on the hunt. Verses 6 to 23 of chapter 22. So David on the run, Saul on the hunt. Let's look at Act 1. It has three scenes. David, a refugee in Nob, a refugee in Gath, and a refugee in the cave of Adullam. These three scenes teach us three truths about our refugee king, as well as all those who seek their refuge in him. The first scene is David and Nob. It teaches us this. God provides for his refugee king. 
David flees from Saul, and as he does so, he has nothing, nothing to eat, nothing to protect himself with, and so he goes to Nob. Apparently, the tabernacle, after the Philistines attacked Shiloh, the tabernacle moved to Nob, and the priests are serving at the tabernacle in Nob. David has already gone to the prophet to seek protection from Saul. Now he goes to the priest, Ahimelech, to seek provision from him in the house of God. Ahimelech knows something's not right. Look at verse 1. We read, Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? A commander of the army of David all by himself? Surely something is not right. So he comes trembling. Remember, that's exactly what happened when Samuel went to Bethlehem to anoint David. The elders of the city came out to him trembling, afraid of what Saul would do to them. They had ground for such fear, as does Elimelech, as we will see later in the story. But David doesn't tell him while he's alone. In fact, he doesn't tell him the truth at all, something that he will deeply regret later. He says he's on the king's business, and he asks for two things, for bread and for a sword. Abimelech gives him the bread of the presence that would have been in the holy place, I think he was probably changing that out on the Sabbath that day, and he gives David some of that. And he gives him Goliath's sword. Why he gives him the bread of the present, something that should only be given to priests who have been purified, is a little lost on me, but I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees. What we are meant to see is that David is provided for in the house of the Lord in this passage the king on the run the refugee king god provides for him but this scene also sets the stage for what will happen to ahimelech later in the story notice in verse 7 sandwiched between ahimelech giving him bread and giving him the sword in the middle we have an ominous verse verse 7 a certain man of the servants of saul was there that day Detained before the Lord, his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So there's a spy at Nob, which will affect all that we see happen in Act 2. But for now, let's return to the, or turn to the second scene of Act 1, where David goes to Gath. This is the lesson that we learn. God protects his refugee king. So he provides for him in Nob. He protects him in Gath. Look at verse 10. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. When we read through our Bibles quickly, we miss a lot. When we slow down, there are certain things that grab our attention. This verse grabbed my attention. David just left Nob with Goliath's sword. Now he walks into Goliath's hometown, Gath, seeking refuge. 
I can't imagine a more dangerous place in all of the world than Gath. That's why this verse stands out. What he is doing, what he is communicating with his actions is that Saul is so ruthless and so dangerous. The king of Israel, the king of God's people, so ruthless, so dangerous that he would be safer in Gentile territory in the very hometown of Goliath. But the servants of the king of Gath find out that David's in town and they report it to Achish. Notice the way they identify him in verse 11. Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Jordan pointed this out last week, but there's people along the way, sometimes unlikely people that see the writing on the wall. David is king. Even the Philistines acknowledge that. But this puts David in great danger. If he is the king of their arch enemy, Israel, then he must be dealt with. He must be put to death. And so as verse 12 tells us, David was greatly afraid. So he devised a plan. He would act like a madman. Maybe they wouldn't see him as a threat if he acted like a lunatic. Look at verse 13. He changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down on his beard. He's clawing the door and he's drooling. And his theatrics work. They think he's certified crazy. And clearly not a threat to them. So they send him packing. What's happening in this episode? Remember I told you earlier that the Psalms are filled with reflections on these events. And this event, thankfully, we have two Psalms that tell us what's going on in them. I want you to turn to the first one. It's Psalm 34. Psalm 34, you can look at the inscription. It tells us that this is when David acted like a lunatic in Gath. And in verse 4, we get David's perspective on what was happening in Gath. He said, I sought the Lord, and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. David changed his face before the king, looking like a fool, but he says their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. So, from the perspective of 1 Samuel alone, we would say it's David's cunning that got him out of trouble. But the Bible gives us the fuller perspective and teaches us that it was the Lord who protected 
David. David, the refugee, found the Lord to be his refuge. He was afraid, greatly afraid. Actually, the only time in the Bible that we're told that David was afraid. But what did he do with his fear? Psalm 56 gives us commentary on his fear. It tells us what David did with his fear, which is very instructive for us. Verse 3 of Psalm 56. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? What's going on here? Notice what David says in verse 4. He praises God's word. What word? I believe it's the word spoken at his anointing that he will be king. And so now, even in the face of great threats, he believes that word. He believes in that promise. When he's afraid, notice this. What does he do? He is afraid. What does he do? He stops. He reflects on what God has said. He knows how he feels, but he stops and reflects on what God has said. And he believes it. He trusts it. Very instructive for what we do whenever we are feeling threatened, feeling afraid, feeling hopeless. But the bigger point is that the Psalms let us see very clearly that through all of this, it is God who is at work in providing for His anointed King so that the promises He has made to Him will come to fruition. Providing and protecting Him. And then David entrusts himself to God. Let's now turn to the third scene. David's been a refugee at Nob and at Gath. Now in chapter 22, verse 1, we see that he departed from there, Gath, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Dave is in the cave. The cave of Adullam. It means refuge. So the Psalms have told us that in each place God has been his refuge. Now he's in the cave of refuge. But here, something interesting happens. The focus shifts a little bit. It's not mainly about David finding refuge. It's not mainly focused on God providing for him and protecting him. The focus shifts to others finding refuge in David. And then David providing for and protecting them. Where do we find refuge? In God's anointed king. And so here's what we learn. God protects and provides for those who seek refuge in the refugee king. Not in the ruthless king Saul, but in the refugee king, God's anointed. Look at verses 1 to 2. Remarkable verses. When his brothers and all his father's house heard it, 
they went down to him there, to the cave. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. David's on the run, a refugee, in distress, destitute. Now he gathers a group around him who are also in distress and destitute. They go to the cave, which would have been the grave, to find hope. And the man on the run. These are people maybe like you who are not getting along so well in King Saul's world. Disenfranchised. Down and out. Done. Friends, these are the ones to whom the kingdom belongs. Blessed Jesus says, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who does Jesus gather around Him? The powerful and important? No. The sinners. The tax collectors. The prostitutes. And you know what Paul says to us? Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. That's the Gospel. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Hannah's prayer. So that no human being might boast in the presence of of God. Here's the pattern. The people seeking refuge, where will they find it? Only in the refugee king. And notice what happens next in verse 3. David, who has been provided for, now starts to provide for others. He takes his family down to Moab a place of protection for them. I think this is David's version of the witness protection program. If you've seen any mafia movies, which I'm sure none of you have, but I have, what will they do to your family if they find them? That's what's going on here. His family comes to him. He says, no, they're not going to kill my mom. And so he takes her to Moab. Why Moab? Aren't the Moabites the enemies of God? Remember, David, who has shown some cunning before, it was God who delivered him, but he's showing resourcefulness now as well. Remember his great-grandma, Ruth? Maybe he's going back to spend time with the in-laws and the witness protection program in Moab. Regardless, David is doing for others what God has done for them. He is protecting them. They find refuge in the refugee king. Then in verse 5, God continues to direct David. He tells him to leave the stronghold and go 
to the forest of Hereth in the land of Judah. And that brings us to Act 2 of our story. We've seen David on the run. Now we turn to Saul on the hunt. Two scenes in this act. Saul with the priests of Nob and David with a priest of Nob. These two scenes will present a very stark contrast. David and Saul are two very different kings. They'll teach us two very important lessons, a lesson that we need to reflect on. What kind of king are we going to find refuge in? The first scene, verses 6 to 19, Saul with the priests of Nob teaches us that those who seek reward from the ruthless king will be destroyed. And friends, the ruthless king is simply the powers that be in this world. Look at verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. David was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. What does Saul do with spears? He chucks them at anyone he believes to be a threat to him. So you may be okay with him until he even smells that you may betray him, and then he will chuck his spear at you. He's heard that David's been found. He wants somebody to tell him where he's at. And so he begins by addressing the sons of Benjamin. I want you to notice the words that he uses. He begins with a threat, which is how all of the rulers of this world tend to lead. Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that you have conspired against me? 1 Samuel 8 Samuel predicted that a king like the nations would take from the people their fields, their vineyards, their sons to make them commanders. Apparently Saul has been doing that from the other 11 tribes of Israel, taking fields and vineyards and giving them to the tribe of Benjamin. Giving them possessions and position. The goods that the world has to offer. And now he's threatening them with that. You're going to go after this refugee? Will he be able to provide you the stuff that I'm able to provide you with? That's the temptation of the world. He says, why then are you not telling me where he's at? Nobody speaks a word. At least none of the people of Benjamin... Doag the Edomite speaks up. He tells him all. Ahimelech has given David provisions, given him the sword of Goliath. He spills the beans. Why? The threat of Saul and the reason Doag spills the beans are related. Why is Doag willing to rat Ahimelech out? Again, the Psalms are instructive for us. Psalm 52 the inscription tells us, is about Doag. And this is what David says 
about Doag in Psalm 52, verse 7. See the man, notice the repeated language in all of these psalms, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Notice the logic here. Doeg was motivated by money, by the fields and the vineyards that could be his if he was on Saul's side, by power, by position, by the things that the rulers of this world can offer us. But David says, seeking riches means you're not seeking refuge in God. And if you do not seek refuge in God, you will be destroyed. He says you're seeking refuge in your own destruction. Certainly Doeg didn't see it that way. But clinging to the things that this world has to offer will lead to your destruction. Isn't that what Jesus says? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, all the fields and vineyards, and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? Doag didn't take this into account. He didn't factor in the consequences of aligning himself with a king like Saul. But David tells us that he will meet his end in destruction. The same is true for us today. The verses that follow show us Saul's true colors. He's not only willing to take fields and vineyards, he's willing to take life. And not only is he willing to take life, but he's willing to take the life of God's priests. Saul summons Ahimelech and says to him basically the same thing that he said to the sons of Benjamin. Look at verse 12. Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse? Ahimelech answers him in a similar way, a humble way that Jonathan did in chapter 20, saying, I don't see what the problem is. David is so faithful to you. And I knew nothing of any conspiracy. His hands are clean. He's innocent. But Saul, serving as both judge and jury, has already made up his mind before Ahimelech even takes the stand. He will receive the death penalty. Not because he has aligned himself with Saul. I don't want you to miss me on that. But because that's the kind of king Saul is. But it's interesting None of the Benjaminites have the gall to take up the sword. Even they see how heinous of a crime this is. But Doag, he'll do the dirty work for Saul. Look at verses 18 and 19. Doag the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. 
Saul has been on a steady decline since chapter 13. I wish I could say that this was the end of how bad it gets. It gets worse as we get to chapter 28. But isn't it interesting that the man who was not willing to engage in all-out holy war against the Gentile Amalekites, the enemies of God, is now willing to conscript a Gentile to hack to pieces the priests of God. What you were meant to see is what the rulers of this world are like. This is what they are like. Nobody's safe in the house of Saul. If you seek for riches and rewards from the worldly powers that be, they may pay you well today. But eventually they will take it all from you. Your reward will be your destruction. You will forfeit your soul. How different are things in David's camp? In the second scene, we see that one of the priests escaped Doeg's sword. It was a man named Abathar, verse 20. And so now we have a contrast. You're meant to see this. I want to make it really plain. We have another priest before another anointed king. How will it fare with him? This is what we learn. Those who seek refuge in the refugee king, they will be safe. After Abathar tells David what happened at Gibeah in verse 21, David says to him, I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. This is what a good leader does. He takes responsibility for his actions. But then he goes on to say, Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. These may be my favorite words in this entire book. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. David has learned that when he is afraid, he trusts in the Lord and that the Lord will keep his promise to his anointed king. David is safe. Therefore, everybody who is in him is safe. Sure, those who are with the anointed king will be opposed. Those who seek your life seek my life as well. Isn't that what Jesus said would happen? He said, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But even though they pursue us to death, we are safe if we are in the anointed king. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I don't want to minimize the 
the thief is real. In saying that you're safe, I am not saying that your life will be trouble-free. The thief is real. The offspring of the serpent has been nipping at the heel of the offspring of Eve since Genesis 3. We have seen the thief in many manifestations. In Pharaoh, executing all of the boys in Egypt. But Moses was saved. In Saul, executing all in the city of Nob. But Abathar was kept safe. In Herod, killing all of the boys in Bethlehem. But the anointed one, he was spared. In the religious leaders and Pilate who put Jesus on a cross, but he was raised. Friends, the enemy, the devil, is seeking to devour you. But Christ will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We will be safe if we are in His Son. They opposed Jesus to death, but in His death, He provided protection for His people. He came to give life. How did He give it? By being the good shepherd who laid down His life so that we can be delivered from the wrath of God, safe and secure from all harm. Are you weary and heavy laden today? Do you need refuge? You do. I hope you see it. Do not seek it in the ruthless and empty promises of the ruler's of this world, the ways of this world, they will kill you, steal from you, destroy you. But if you are in distress, if you are bitter in soul, if you are in debt, if you are poor in spirit, come to the One who says, a bruised reed I will not break, a smoldering wick I will not crush out. You refugees, come to the refugee King and you will be safe. Let us pray. Father, thank You for Your Word which exposes the lies of this world and reveals the very unlikely truth of the Gospel that our hope His refugees is found in the one who was persecuted, who had no place to lay his head, who was born in a manger, who suffered and died on a cross, but rose on the third day. It is in him that we are safe. It is in him that we have hope. Help us to cling to him, to gather around him. In his name we pray. Amen.